Good morning. Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day that's marked by parades and speeches and flags and flowers that are placed on the graves of many servicemen. Anybody have an idea of how many flags will be in Arlington Cemetery tomorrow? Over 260,000. I don't have an exact count, but I know that's a conservative estimate. Memorial Day was first observed on May 30th, 1868, during that, that war between the states, that civil war. And it was there really started to honor the deaths both in the Union Army and in the Rebel Army on both sides to recognize the sacrifices that were made in our country as we warred with each other. Now, these days, we remember and honor all of those who have fought and died in all of the wars up to today. It is perhaps the most solemn of and special holiday that we actually observe. Each grave reminds us of a father or a son or a brother or a mother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle, or a friend. They all came from someone's family. I want to encourage you that as you go through your day tomorrow, that you carve out a little bit of time to remember and to pray. There are some places that are somewhat close that maybe you might want to go and to just observe and maybe a good place for you to pray. I can think of Rose Park Veterans Memorial that's here in Kalamazoo or the Plainwell Veterans Memorial which is up in Plainwell. And of course there's the Fort Fort Custer National Cemetery that's over in Augusta and Veterans Memorial Park that's up in Grand Rapids. And you guys know I'm new here, so you may know some places I don't know. Places to go to remember and to thank God for those who gave their all so we can live free. Can we take just a moment to stand and to lift up those families that have made a sacrifice. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for that ultimate sacrifice you made of Christ. And yet, Father, we know that freedom has never been free. And we know, Father, that freedom is something that has to be paid for over and over in this world. And we thank you, Father, for the men and women through the years 
that have stood in the gap and protected this country. And we thank you, Father, for the families who gave that ultimate sacrifice of their loved one so that we may be free in this world. Remembering and honoring the fact, Father, that many of them also believed in the freedom that you gave through the sacrifice of your own son. We pray, Father, for the families that are left, that you will stir their hearts, that they will know you are present, and that your spirit may bring comfort. As we open your word this morning, Father, may we receive comfort from your word as well as guidance towards your ultimate freedom. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We have been uh, going through a series looking at some things that have happened in the life of King David And uh, we've only got a couple more weeks to go, but I wanted to show you this. Uh, I took this picture a few years ago when my son Noah and I had an opportunity to spend about 14 days over in the Holy Land. He was um, actually living and working in Germany at that point, and so we both traveled from different places in the world in order to get there. This is a city uh, called Bet Shean. Uh, it, it is mentioned in the Bible, by the way. Bet Shean, I think, is the way it's mentioned there. But Bet Shean. Uh, and what you see in front of you here is uh, ruins from the Greco Roman days. And you, you see, this is a, 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 not a Colosseum, but this is a theater that's at the place there. The Colosseum is actually in a different location. You notice this main road that runs through right here through the town and there is a colonnade down both sides of it Um, and this is only a mild small portion that goes fairly good distance on both sides this has been a national treasure a national monument for a long long time but I want to draw your attention to this hill can you see it back there that hill is called a tell. You remember what a tell is? A tell is a man-made hill. This particular tell has many destruction levels in it where uh, things were built. Some of it collapsed on its own through time. Others was destroyed and in uh, battles, and then dirt, and then reconstructing on top of that. There are many, many destruction levels in that tell. And this shot is between a quarter and a half a mile away, so, I mean, it's huge. It's huge. Um, It's estimated that there may be destruction levels on this tell as old as 6,000 years. It's a place of significance because it is a place of palaces. Canaanite kings 
had palaces on this tell. So did King Saul. In fact, you may remember when King Saul died, that's recorded towards the end of 1 Samuel, that um, the Philistines came and got his body and the body of his three sons and nailed them to the wall. It was on this tell where that display was made. Solomon and David both had palaces that were on this tell. And you notice it sits really high compared to the city, right? This is a relatively flat area, and that tell becomes the high place where he can have a great, the king can have a great view of all of the valley around. And hills are defensible, yes? You always want the high ground if you can get it, because hills become a place from which to make a stand. There is another hill where David made a stand just outside of Jerusalem. And the story begins rather abruptly in 2 Samuel 24. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But if you want to flip in your Bible over there, you can kind of get a quick glance at what we're looking at. Uh, But it begins like this. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? Yet, the chronicler over in 1 Chronicles writes about this same event in 1 Chronicles 21. And he says it in a slightly different way. See if you can tell the difference. He says, Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Do you notice a slight difference in those two? Yeah, and we're left to scratch our heads, right? And to wonder, well, well, which is it? If you actually read both accounts, it becomes very obvious that they are talking about the same events. Now, they're talking about it from two different perspectives. There are some changes in the detail uh, which you would expect if you have two eyewitnesses who were viewing the same thing from different perspectives, but very much the same events. But how do we reconcile the Lord inciting David and Satan inciting David? This is not an exegetical class on the text. So we're not going to spend the next week looking at this and trying to figure it out. Okay. If you will allow me, let me see if I can perhaps bring in what may be the best solution here. We have to remember that even all the way back to the time of Job, Satan never does anything that God 
does not allow. Do you believe that? Say yes or yes. Okay. God is the one in control. Satan is a created being. And just like God could use Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus the Persian, all of them were used by God to his ends, so God can use Satan to his ends. And I would suggest that's what's going on here. There is a recognition of where this is coming from ultimately and a recognition of where it was coming from specifically. Now, we do have to ask the question, why was God upset? I got three words for you. Do you know what they are? I don't know. Scripture does not tell us. I don't know where the sin lies in this story. That has been the subject of centuries of debate, and we are not going to solve it in 20 minutes here this morning. But it should suffice to say that God was upset, and Israel was on the wrong road. Now, we can surmise that the census has something to do with gathering up an army. That was a normal thing. Also, it would not have been something that was done overnight. It was something that would have taken months to do. Nearly 10 months is the best estimate to complete that census. By the way, do you know how long it takes to do a census for an army today in America? Do you know how long it takes? About three seconds. Have you ever heard of the selective service? Can I get a groan? Ah. (laughs) I remember when I signed up for the selective service. The selective service had been on hold for quite a few years. And then Jimmy Carter reinstated it as mandatory in 1982. And in 1982, I was a student at Milligan College. Now, Milligan is built on the side of a hill. You can't go anywhere in Milligan without going uphill or downhill everywhere. And the school was up on the hill and the post office was down the hill, down by a creek called Buffalo Creek. And I can remember leaving my dorm and walking that quarter mile or so down to the post office and filling out the form. I can remember that there was, there was turmoil going on at the time. In fact, it was almost like we were at war with the world, Libya, Iran, Lebanon, Honduras, the Persian Gulf, all of those things were going on. The Falkland War broke out in 1982. And then Operation Urgent Fury, Grenada, came along. And I can remember that me 
and all of the other male students in that school, looking at the news day to day, we were convinced that we were all going to be drafted. But you know, the selective service is a here I stand moment. Second Samuel records that 1.3 million men of fighting age were found in the census. That would be from 20 years old and up. Yet there is something wrong with David counting in this census. I don't know where the sin lies. Again, it's, it's an unsolvable debate. But what is certain is that with sin comes consequences. David knew this all too well uh, because of that little tryst he had with Bathsheba. That's over in 2 Samuel 11. Now, we're not going to talk about this this week. We are going to talk about it next week. I'm glad that was off. Good job, Houston. Um, But we will talk about that next week. But since that night that David took another man's wife, his whole family has been falling apart. And now, at this point in time we're talking about today, David is seeing his country is falling apart. And he comes to clarity in that moment about the sin. And he immediately repents. Yet, with sin comes consequences. God gives David a choice of what is going to befall Israel as a consequence of their sins. In fact, he gives them three choices. The first one, three years of famine. The second one, three months of defeat in battle, a war where the world comes after Israel. And the third one, three days of plague, intense sickness across the land. So which is it? Famine, a struggle beyond their control, defeat and battle becoming the enemy's laughing stock, or three days of an intense, intense illness. By the way, do you know what all of these have in common? Do you see it? What do all three of these have in common? There is going to be, yes, the three, And there is going to be what? Death. There's no escaping death. With sin comes consequences. How did Paul put it? For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 
Which of these three would you have chosen? David thought about it, and I believe he chose grace. David said to the prophet Gad, I am deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into the hands of men. Do you hear what he decided? Lord, you bring the punishment because I know you have grace. And if you think about it, this fits with the pattern of David's life to admit to the sin and then to rely on the Lord's grace. Now, there are many modern Americans that have this idea that that grace cancels consequences. And I would beg you to read carefully through Scripture I think you will see that is wrong thinking. Because consequences are the result of actions, not a test of grace. When the sin is removed, we're put back into a right relationship with God. But that does not mean that the consequences that come from our sin are going to disappear. Some of them will be more severe than others, but there will always be something that will be a consequence. If we miss anything else about David's life, we really really ought to learn this. The sin that came from the the consequences that came from Israel's sin in those three days of plagues, wound up costing 70,000 people their lives. We read in verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these are sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Do you hear what David is doing? He is trying to stand in the gap. The prophet Gad comes and tells David to go and to build an altar to the Lord and to sacrifice to God in Aruna's field on his threshing floor in Jerusalem. Threshing floor. Threshing floor is where the the grain is separated from the chaff. Um, There's actually two processes that happen at the end of, and the harvest is happening at the end of the, the growing season. The first one is a threshing. And a threshing is where the grain is beat on the ground to try to release it from the stalks. And then the stalks are thrown up into the air to allow the wind to blow the stalks and then to get the grain to fall to the ground. Winnowing is finer work. 
Winnowing is when you take what's collected on the ground and then you carefully pour so the last of that chaff gets carried out on the wind as the seeds fall. It is a process of refining. It's a separating a sheep's and goat's kind of a a moment. Down at verse 21, we read where David talks to Aruna about buying his threshing floor. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to a servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take whatever pleases him and offer it up. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and here are the threshing sleds and the ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all of this to the king. Aruna also said to him, may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So, David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. From a Jewish perspective, This is not a payment for wrong. Now, I know what you're thinking. But Eric, David admitted it. He claims he is the one who was the cause of all of this. You got your Bibles open. I want you to look back at verse 2. 2 Samuel 24, 2. Who is it that God is angry at? Is he angry at David or is he angry at Israel? He's angry at Israel. And you're right. David does take upon himself to pay the price. To stand in the gap. Taking on the people's sin. Willing to pay the price himself to protect and to deliver them from God's wrath. But from a Jewish perspective, this is not David paying for his own sin. This is the king acting selflessly for the people, for the sheep that he loves, willing to pay the cost. There's a slight difference here over in 2 Chronicles as well. 2 Chronicles 21-25, the chronicler says that David paid 600 shekels of gold. 
to Aruna. By the way, 600 shekels, that's basically 15 pounds of gold. Now, I know this is the wrong measurement, but it gives us a clue as to, as to what David did, how he was willing to stand in the gap. Have I got any bankers here, any investors, CPA, anybody who knows what 15 pounds of gold is worth? I got, I got one word for you. A lot. Yes? I happened to check the spot price of gold yesterday as of close of business on Friday. The spot price of gold is at $1,855 an ounce as of close of business Friday. So 15 pounds times 16 ounces times 1855 Okay, I did the math too. Today, that would be over $445,000. I'm not saying the units are exactly the same. What I am saying is David was willing to give sacrificially for those that were in his care. When David said, I will not offer sacrifice to my God that costs me money, he was willing, really willing to pay the price so the people could be filled with praise. There is another wrinkle in this story, and I'm sure we could spend a lot more time on this, but this wrinkle, David would never benefit from having bought Aruna's field that he paid so handsomely for. See, there's a principle in the law back in Leviticus 27 around verses 20 and 21 that when David built an altar and sacrificed in that field, that ground became holy, set apart. That hill which was used to thresh grain and to purify the sins of Israel became permanently dedicated to God. That altar that David built would become available to the priests to continue to sacrifice on that hill where David stood in the gap. And that hill became the temple Mount. I want to back up for just a second here and take a moment before I end this, before I give you the last point, the most important one. I want you to pull out that connection card that you have that's in your bulletin. And uh, if you would, take just a moment to write your name on it 
uh, everybody uh, an email. If you're a first-time guest, if you want to give us more information, please feel free to do that. If you're a first-time guest, we have a, a gift for you that's out in the foyer that table with the red tablecloth. There's a couple of books there. There's a coffee cup if you'd like to take one of those. Um, but please take that uh, as, as a gift from us. I'm going to take the time to fill mine out right now as you're doing yours. Hold on just a second. On the back of the card, I've asked you to memorize Second uh, Samuel twenty four twenty four. Those words of David, where he commits to never offer a sacrifice that doesn't cost him anything. Second Samuel eleven. That's that's the story of David and Uriah and Nathan and Bathsheba. And we'll be talking about that next week if you'd like to give that a, a look and so you're more prepared. Over on the right side, on the back of the card there, you will note that there's a place to get some more information. If you, you like information about what it is to become a Christian, if, if, you, if you're wanting information about baptism and to, to get that lined up or just what it means to be uh, a member of the church. I'd ask you to mark that. Uh, the card will eventually get to me this, you know, this next week early, and uh, either I'll get a hold of you or somebody else will get a hold of you, and we'd love to make sure that you get good information. Um, there's a couple things to sign up for. Uh, one thing I do want to follow back up on last week, we did take a, a special offering uh, to help with transportation costs, to help with gas, to try to help get um, Bob uh, Baker and Phyllis Burnham up to Grand Rapids. Over 10 of you guys have said, if you need me, call me, we'll take them. We appreciate that. We raised a little over $700 last week to help pay for gas for those trips. And uh, if we have a week where uh, they don't need help, but they're running back and forth, we're going to take a little bit of that, and we're going to give it to them so they can still get the benefit of that instead of taking on extra costs themselves. So thank you for that, for standing in the gap for that family. Uh, one other thing I want to mention, um, this past week at a regular elders meeting, discussion came up about uh, communion and about our communion service and how we're doing it. Uh, during the height of not having a lot of information about COVID and wanting to be uh, uh, really with a great amount of caution, we went to the individual cups that are sealed uh, that we're still using now. But a discussion came up with the elders about possibly going back to the individual uh, cups and uh, more of the traditional way of doing communion. Um, no decision was made to, to either do that or to not do it or to do something kind of hybrid where there would be traditional elements and maybe a ring of the sealed cups around it. Um, but what was thought is that we don't want to do anything with those elements without getting your feedback. 
So if you would like to give us your feedback this week, next week, just down in the comment section on the, uh, on the card as to whether you'd like to keep it going the way we are now or whether going back to traditional or a blend of something like that, we'd love to get your feedback. I'll mention it again next week. But we'd love to hear from you because we, we, we don't want to impose this on you. We'd really like to hear where you are, okay? Um, and we have not made a decision one way or the other. It's just the discussion came up. When we close today, I'm going to call on, on Pat. Pat and Emily Hill are with us. And Emily's parents are here and... Uh, They're doing wonderful work with his house up north, and we're really glad they're here. But he made the mistake of being a preacher showing up without a job, so he's going to get to pray us out. And and we very much appreciate that. But if you get a moment and you want to encourage them, be sure that you say something to them. Um, My notes went away. I get them back right here. There we go. Okay. David's conviction that I'll never sacrifice, make sacrifices to God that cost me nothing, should remind us that religion that cost us nothing is worthless. We are not saved by God so that we can continue in our sin and go about doing life the way we want to. And when we come to Christ and we give ourselves wholly to his leadership, we become bond servants willing to follow him. It is going to cost us some of our freedom in the sense that we no longer make decisions based on what we want, but we make decisions based on what he wants. And ultimately, that little bit of a freedom loss there opens up eternal freedom for us. As we learn the way we should be living by the way he created us. We must give our all to the one who gave his all for us. He chose a hill from which to stand in the gap. A place of sacrifice for our sin. A place called Golgotha. The place of the skull. Of the skull. It was not a threshing floor. It was a killing field. As Peter writes and tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter's call to us is to live for God who sacrificed himself for you. 
So in this story where we're talking about David and what David did for the people, I want you to walk away and make a commitment to do this. Raise your commitment. Stand in the gap that you need to. Don't offer God that which cost you nothing. Offer him all of who you are. For he has given his all for you. Father God, we thank you for the constancy of your word, for the constancy of who you are. We thank you, Father, that the men and women that are presented in Scripture are are not paper figures, but are real people with real struggles, and they show us how you, a very real God, handle life in this world and give real grace. And we thank you, Father, for the grace that comes from the cross, from you being willing to stand in the gap for those you have created so that our sin can be set aside and washed away and we can live a new and different life in you. We thank you for that hope. And Father, if there are anyone here that is struggling with the decision or has made a decision to give their all to you today, I pray, Father, your blessing on that decision. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.